you messed up and everybody around you knows it and you're in trouble and guess what you uh well we're never gonna work with you again we're gonna really spend time with you again as a matter of fact we're never gonna love you again guess what these are all voices in my head uh they're certainly all voices that i've had with regard to podcasting and because of that, I thought it would be a very interesting conversation to talk with someone that is an expert in managing crises. That's right. We're talking to risk communications expert, podcaster, author, Leonard Greenberger, as he joins us on a very precarious and preventative episode. This is preventative. This is a prophylactic against what could happen if I keep doing more of these episodes. It's coming up on Open Loops. Hey everybody, welcome to Open Loops theme park for your ears. A interesting romp between imagination and intellect where they you know they they go on the roller coaster they're sipping from the same soda pop uh that's not a word and uh, you know what they're also doing they're riding the ferris wheel together looking in each other's eyes making out and they're also like 25 years old your intellect your imagination um but they're madly in love with each other and they get to celebrate in the theme park on this show open loops. Leonard Greenberger is our guest today. He is a very straightforward but clearly communicative person. He specializes in communications. I thought it would be interesting to bring him on. Um, some of you may know I, I've delved into the sales world in my life and certainly among my hypnosis studies and persuasion and whatnot. I'm always interested in how do you get out of a disaster? What happens when you say something or really mess things up and you need to like get out of it in a clear, communicative way? Turns out a lot of what Leonard said, well, I'll, let you, uh, I'll let you listen. Perfect, perfect. All right. Today we have Leonard Greenberger, the author of What to Say When Things Get Tough, Business Communication Strategies for Winning People Over When They're Angry, Worried, and Suspicious of Everything You Say. Leonard, uh, and, and I'm guessing that's also the name of your podcast. That's correct. They have the same name, so it makes it convenient. You can buy the book and or listen to the podcast uh, with one Google search. Very cool. Well, look, thank you for coming on today to Open Loops. Um, <laughs> this is now look, honestly, I mean, you're like the one of the few people that's like not a life coach or psychic or, um, you know, paranormal investigator. I'm happy to have you on. Uh, unless are there any weird things about you, Ashadow? <laughs> uh, not that I'd like to share with you and your audience, but I would say that there is, <laughs> the uh, I, life coach might sort of fit into what I do, which is to try to help people communicate more effectively in difficult situations, both professional and personal. So 
there is a bit of coaching to it. Yeah. You know, when anybody gets into something specific like this, I, I, I do wonder, you know, it's such a specific, I mean, there's the book Crucial Conversations and there, there is sort of stuff about uh, managing these kind of situations that come up. Uh, I know my life coach that I'm working with currently says that, you know, conflict is fine, Conflict is okay, but it's how you manage the conflict where that's where, you know, the craft and the artistry really comes in and, and the perspective you have. I mean, I'm curious, were you uh, dealing with a lot of angry, worried, and suspicious people in your life and you had to develop these strategies or how did you even come into this? Well, I have a background in public relations, so I myself wasn't necessarily getting into difficult situations all that often, but I had clients that were. Mm. I worked with a lot of uh, companies, for example, that were either trying to build new facilities or in many cases to clean up uh, facilities that were contaminated in some way. And so they needed to communicate not only with their own employees, but also with the communities around these facilities. And as you can imagine, when you come into a community and say, hey, we're going to put up a power line or a new power plant or some other industrial facility, or you have to announce that this facility that's been there for a long time, turns out there's a lot of contamination in the soil and or the groundwater. Well, that's where you wind up dealing with people who are angry, worried and suspicious of everything you say. Wow, 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 wow. That's so interesting. I mean, I can't even think of and, and I, I won't, you know, go too far into this, but um, you know, the the my my parents' current hometown where they are is dealing with this very thing um they there was a water contamination mm -hmm. um and it seems that everything at least i'm picking up from the conversations my mom's very involved in the town seems to be that they are it feels like it's stalling like they keep having these board meetings and, and these zoom meetings where they're like doing kind of these crisis management answering questions when things are going to get resolved when they're not and it's like you know you just want them to come out and say that it's going to take a long time and we really messed up um i mean we're how do effective companies tread that line you think well, effective companies, responsible companies, uh, they do it in a number of ways. For one, they are open and honest about what's going on, even if that means having to be open and honest about the fact that they're not 100% sure what's going on. Mm. Particularly in terms of a timeline or a schedule, you can understand why these sorts of situations can drag on. There are a lot of laws and regulations, and it can become very political and in many cases, the community, which I believe is a good thing, has a chance to weigh in and comment and have its say on what's going to go forward. And that that just takes time. I'll say, too, of course, tying it back to what I said at the top with how I got inspired to start a podcast with the coronavirus. I mean, everything has slowed down, of course, uh, everywhere. And that includes around these facilities where they're trying to get something permitted or, or to clean something up. Have you had to deal with a lot in your work right now? Uh, obviously, you don't have to mention any specific company names, but have you, has the, that there just been an influx of like COVID management? I can't imagine that there wouldn't be. Well, yes, I'm not so much with the 
with the clients, the types of clients I've just described, these bigger companies that are trying to build or clean something up. I think the biggest impact that has occurred there, and you alluded to it, is that public meetings, which used to take place in person, of course, now are all being done virtually. And that raises some complications and difficulties that we haven't faced before. In other areas where I'm active and my, my company, my firm is active in the education and healthcare space, definitely uh, difficult conversations are being held related to COVID in those circumstances. Yeah, what would you say is like a good, I mean, I'm trying to figure this out myself too, Leonard, about uh, really effectively addressing the fact, I, I mean, everybody is saying, and I know this because, uh, you know, I do, I do some sales part-time work, um, and uh, actually, I guess it's full-time, really. Uh, I'm in a position where I'm able to do a sales job, and, you know, some of the stuff that you hear, themes are, oh, we don't, well, we don't know. There's no timeline right now. We're not sure. We're not sure when we could decide on whether we're going to buy this thing, use this service, da-da-da-da-da. I mean, on the other end of that, as, as a salesperson in this climate, what is the most effective way of actually getting something done when everything seems so uncertain timing-wise? Well, that's a very good question. I'm not sure I have a great answer for it other than to go back to what I just said, which is being open and honest about timeframes. Uh, it's just what you have to do. And also to a certain degree, under promise and over deliver. So mm. don't, don't commit to something that you're not going to be able to fulfill. Uh, rather try to give a deadline or a time frame that's re- more than realistic so that you'll meet it. And, and score some points if you wind up doing something earlier than you had said you would be able to do it. Does this relate at all to, like, would you ever work with a sales team at all, or is this a totally different field? Uh, it's a bit of a different field. I wouldn't necessarily work with a sales team, although I do use the example of, a not sales, but customer service reps who are dealing with angry, worried, and suspicious people on the phone, you know, almost every day. Certainly some of the skills and techniques I talk about in the book and in the podcast would be effective in, in that kind of a situation. What's a good, uh, I, I, I just want to understand what you do a little more. Like what's like, uh, you know, as vague as possible, like what, but still specific, uh, like what's a good example of that kind of customer service management that you've had to, you know, that you frequently get in these situations? Well, I'll tell you what, let me, uh, let me change that up a little bit um, and give you an example from one of these companies I worked with in the past that needed to clean up a contaminated site. Uh, this was a facility in the state of New Jersey, a large pharmaceutical company, mm-hmm. at a very large research campus in a town in New Jersey. It had been there for eight years at its peak. I think it employed more than 10,000 people. And about eight years ago or so, after a series of mergers, the company announced that they were going to be closing this campus and divesting it. And you can imagine what a blow that was uh, to Uh, for a lot of reasons, of course, if nothing more important than the fact that it provided, I think, over half of the city's revenue through its tax uh, payments. And then on top of it, when they began to look at the site and get it ready for sale, they discovered that there was some contamination in groundwater beneath the site. 
Now, they don't think the contamination still to this day, as they've been investigating it, really came from the facility itself. It's moving underneath the community, underneath the facility. But nevertheless, they had to look into it. And so they went into the, began to drill, to, uh, drill wells to sort of get an idea, okay, what's below here? Where is it? What is it? And they were doing that on the site itself and decided that they needed to go off-site to drill a couple of wells to follow the contamination in the groundwater as it was moving. And they went into the neighborhood. They didn't inform anyone ahead of time. All of a sudden, a drilling truck showed up on a residential street, started pounding a hole in the pavement. And as you can imagine, people came out and were asking questions. And they contacted their local politicians and said, what's going on here? Why are they drilling in my street? And in that way, discovered that in fact, there was contamination that needed to be addressed. Mm. So here you have a situation where there's a bit of a screw up on the company's part. They didn't communicate well ahead of time. They didn't let residents know what they were doing and why. And so they caused a, a bit of a crisis uh, as the members of the community began to realize what was going on and worry about what might be beneath the site on top of the fact that this facility is shutting down and all these people are gonna lose their jobs. So that's when we got called in. So one of the things we did right away was to say, look, you've got to be more open with this community. You've got to be, you've got to tell them what's going on. And we also encourage them to hold a public meeting and have it on the facility site and invite people to come on this facility uh, to see what was going on, to hear about what was going on, and also to send the message to them that, look, this, there's nothing dangerous here. You know, there, you don't have to walk around in booties or anything. Right, right. And, uh, and so send the nonverbal messages, which we can talk about forever, that are so important that, hey, you know, things are okay. I hope that gives you sort of a sense of, of, of the kind of work I do. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm very sort of curious about, you know, looking into your book a little bit. Um, like the idea that risk communication is a field is like kind of like oh huh what like uh, I I mean where did uh, did you know you were getting into risk communication when you started like how did that fit into your trajectory? Well, when I early in my career, um, I started working with a, an expert in the field, uh, Dr. Vince Cavello. He's the director of the Center for Risk Communication at Columbia University, and yeah. is one of the founding fathers of the field of science of risk communication. And we worked together on, with a couple of clients to help prepare them to do exactly what I just described, to communicate with uh, communities about activities that were going on there and try to gain support for what they wanted to do and also to um, you know, assuage the fears of people in the community about what they wanted to do. And so I've learned almost everything I know about or early on um, about risk communication uh, from him. Uh, it, it's a fascinating field. It's been around for about, well, I guess it's closing in on 60 years now, but Vince did some of the pioneering research and it actually, the science of risk communication grew out in part of the uh, environmental movement of the late 60s and 1970s when uh, the Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act that were passed back then for the first time gave citizens uh, the opportunity and the right to participate in these decisions. So you no longer, companies could no longer just say, okay, we're gonna build this new plant here. We're gonna build this new power line here. And the community had nothing to say. Now they, it was codified in law. They had the right to participate in the process. And so suddenly 
these companies and also government agencies like the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency needed new skills and techniques to engage in a way that they had never had to do before. So that was one branch. And another that I think is fascinating came out yeah, of the medical it is. It came out of the medical field. And again, Dr. Cavello did a lot of this initial work where he would record doctors having conversations with terminally ill patients. So you can the most difficult conversation you, you can you can have where they would sit were literally sitting down for the first time to tell the patient that they had been diagnosed with a terminal disease. Mm. And doctors just were terrible at it. I mean, who would necessarily be good at something like that? Yeah, right, right. Except doctors who, you know, in theory would have to have that conversation much more often than they like to, and certainly much more often than many of us ever have to, just didn't know how to do it. A lot of times they would resort to humor just to try to make the situation more comfortable or try to make the patient more comfortable. And that just backfired. I'm sure it tanked. Yeah. Geez. In fact, one of my favorite stories that, that Vince tells that I use with a lot of my clients and trainees is uh, one doctor who sat down and told someone that they, you know, they, I think it was a terminal cancer they had been diagnosed with. And of course the first question everybody asks in a situation like that is how long do I have? And in this particular case, the doctor sort of sat back and thought for a few seconds and then said, asked the patient, do you own a record turntable? And the patient sort of you know, was taken aback, but said yes. And the doctor said, well, I wouldn't buy any long playing records if I were you. Oh my gosh, what? <laughs> Not exactly the best bedside manner. So yeah. There's others who, who looked at these situations and said, you know, as I said, we need, we need new skills. We need new techniques. We, we don't know how to do this well. And it's something that people are going to have to do a lot more of. And so that's where, that's how the field was born. Wow. And, 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 you know, I mean, just as someone that um, I, I've studied a lot of hypnosis and persuasion techniques, uh, just as recreationally very interested in sort of the, the field of, I guess, applied psychology. Um, it, it, do you look at like when it does come to managing things in your personal life, uh, what exactly are some things that like, like uh, broad principles that um, you really go over with regards to interpersonal relationships. Like, it seems like it's a very specific thing you're doing with businesses. So mm -hmm. I'm like, huh, so how does this very specific thing show up in personal lives if you say it is part of what you're looking at and curious about? Well, I, of course, I've applied these skills and techniques at risk communication more in a professional setting than I have in a personal setting, but it's always uh, been a fascination of mine that certainly some of the things that we, the techniques we use professionally would absolutely make a difference and help people to be more effective in personal situations. Although there is always the, the X factor of emotional attachment. When you're, when you're say representing a, a utility that needs to clean up a, a, a contaminated site and you're talking to residents near the you know, who live near the site. There's no emotional connection there, so it, it it changes things a little when you're trying to deal with somebody that a family member or a significant other or um, you know somebody that you have the emotional connection with. However, having said that, I do think some of the skills and techniques come into play. One of one we've talked about already, which is so important, and that's openness and honesty. Um, I think any relationship expert will tell you that that's really the 
the basis of effective communication. If you're not open, if you're not honest, uh, you're not going to get very far uh, in uh, in resolving any situation uh, in a personal setting. So uh, that's number one, I think. And maybe I'll step back here and say that one of the devices that I use to help people remember some of the skills and techniques they need to employ and think about in a difficult situation is called a code. It's the code for trust and credibility. And the code is an an acronym. And the C stands for caring and empathy. The O for openness and honesty we've talked about. The D for dedication and commitment. And the E for expertise and competence. And we've talked about the O already, but the C is, is even more important, really. Uh, that's caring and empathetic. To be successful communicating in a difficult situation, you really must be seen as a caring and empathetic person. And that means being able to place yourself inside the shoes, step into the shoes of the person you're communicating with or people that you're communicating with and see things from their point of view. It doesn't mean that you have to agree with them or think they're right, but you do have to understand why they feel the way they feel and why they're concerned or angry or upset or suspicious if you hope to be able to communicate with them effectively and win them over as, as the title of my book, the subtitle of my book says. And the research shows that the reason the, the C the, in the code is first is because caring and empathy is even more than openness and honesty, uh, an incredibly important criteria when it comes to how people judge whether or not another person is a trustworthy and credible source of information. Uh, the research shows that people will decide whether someone is caring and empathetic within 30 seconds of meeting them. And once they've made a decision, it's very difficult to change their mind. And of course, that's not happening on a, on a uh, conscious basis. We're not judging those kinds of things, you know, sort of looking up and down in our, there's some sort of computer going on in our head that we can listen to. Saying, right. Oh, this makes me think they're caring. This makes me think they're empathetic. It's a very, it's a, it's a psychological phenomenon, a subconscious phenomenon that, uh, people employ. So uh, that's a, that's incredibly important. Well, look, here's something interesting. I mean, and, and I, I hope this isn't, I don't think this will be a hard question for you, um, but it's hard for me to understand. There's research out there. I've heard this before. Uh, can't verify it, but that about one in five CEOs are psychopaths. Mm-hmm. So if that's the case, are you having to actually in a business situation try to teach people empathy and in an environment where uh sociopathy and psychopathy just happens to naturally be how do you reconcile that how do you work with that well i don't know that thinking back any of the people i've worked with are sociopaths but of course maybe they were and i just didn't know it i think (laughs) right right more often if I think in terms of the people that I work with, it's not a matter of being a sociopath. It's a, it's more a matter of not understanding that caring and empathy is important. Uh, it's not that they're not caring and empathetic people, but particularly when they step into these situations, they often think that that for whatever reason is an ineffective strategy uh, when you're in a difficult um, situation. Do you ever have, has any ever anyone ever been like, Hey, look, Leonard, I, 
I just, these people are angry and I don't know what to do with them. And you're like, well, you see why they're angry. And they're just like, no, 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 they're just jerks. They're being jerks. Like, do you ever get that kind of person? Or do people seem to be empathetic once you uh, really dig into what's at the root of the issue? I, I can't say I've ever had a situation where anyone just absolutely refused to see things that way. I think after enough time and training and explanation, they do come around to the idea that it is something that they need to understand and that the people that they're trying to communicate with have legitimate fears. And that I deal with many of the people I deal with at the CEO level as well, but also generally they're engineers, they're scientists, they're researchers, they're very literal minded, they're Mm. data focused. And so to them, when you walk into a conversation about, say whether or not this particular chemical on the ground is dangerous, they come at it from a scientific point of view. They'll cite the you know, research that's been done. They'll cite regulations that have been set in terms of exposure and so forth. And they think that should be effective in winning people over when they're angry, worried, and suspicious. When of course the research shows that that's the last thing that's gonna win people over. You can't just throw a bunch of numbers and statistics and research results at people who are afraid for their lives or the lives of the people they care about, you eventually do want them, you know, your goal is to get them around to that way of thinking that, hey, this is, I'm going to be okay and this isn't dangerous. But to get there, you have to first demonstrate those other criteria, the qualities that I laid out, the caring, the openness, the dedication, or they're not going to be willing to accept any hard information that you want to relate to them. It's, it's the old um, axiom, I guess you'd call it. People don't care what you know until they know what you care, know that you care. Mm. And so that's yeah. it. I mean, I was going to say, you know, it's interesting because listening to you, and this is just sort of uh, – you know, I mean, look, I'm probably too empathetic in a lot of ways um, <laughs> in the sense that I, uh, I I come from an acting background, very much like tuned into energies, um, you know, in terms and even like, look at me, the language I'm using right now is so like not business communication. Um, <laughs> I wish it was, but I, I was going to say, I mean, do you... It, it, what's interesting to me is the way that you've abstracted what some people might just call, uh, I don't know, being being like a good human. Um, in some ways, like like there are formulas. I looked in your book and you have like, you know, the E equals P times C and all this stuff. I mean, is it is abstracting it to that level? And and this field of risk communication, uh, vital for the way you understand things, and do you look through the world and interactions in that frame, or are you able to let it go, Leonard, and just kind of like hang out, but still be good with communicating? Uh, well, I, I I hope I can let it go and hang out. Um, <laughs> good, good. <laughs> yeah, I, I I think I can. Now, having said that, as I have thought about how these skills and techniques and principles can be applied in personal communication, I have learned that I, sometimes I turn it off too much. Uh, I'm not as caring and empathetic as I could be. Uh, I think I'm a pretty open and honest guy. Uh, Maybe not as dedicated and committed. And when I find myself getting into an argument, for example, with my girlfriend, 
uh, I will often do a lot of the things that if I, if I were coaching a client and saw him or her doing those things would be like, no, no, stop, stop. You know, that's not right. <laughs> right. Go back and try again. And, and uh, often I will eventually come to the point with, yeah, you know, dummy, use some of these things that you teach other people to do. And this conversation is going to go a lot better. And, and I find that it does if I step back. And, for, and I think the most important one is being empathetic. You know, again, if, if you're in an argument with a significant other, do your best to understand why he or she feels the way they do. And again, not because you necessarily have to agree with it, but if you can understand why they're coming to the conversation from their point of view, it will make it much easier for you to communicate with them effectively and understand what they're trying to say and, and come to some sort of an agreement and resolve whatever conflict may exist. Mm, yeah. Do you, I, I, I'm very curious about this. I, I, I don't want to give away the goods in your book, uh, which is available on Amazon. What to say when things get tough, business communication strategies for winning people over when they're angry, worried, and suspicious of everything you say. Um, one of the blurbs on the back is talk it mentions powerpoint uh i tell me this what is the deal with powerpoints how are people messing up using powerpoint presentations oh boy well that's a whole other sort of ball of wax but i'll, I'll i can say a few things it powerpoint is a crutch it's uh it's something that you can use to the people often use to deflect attention from themselves and in, in these situations that I'm talking about, which by the way, are often summarized as being high concern, low trust. So mm. the people you're trying to communicate with are concerned about something that you're doing, which means that they feel you're imposing some sort of a risk or burden on them, which can be physical if they fear for their well-being or the well-being of people they care about. It can be financial. A lot of the situations I get involved in with clients, there is a property value aspect to it because if you suddenly discover there's contamination, for example, in the facility a block away from your home that nobody knew was there before, you certainly might be concerned that it's going to be harder for you to sell your house if you want to do so. Yeah. Um, or it can be an, just an emotional burden. You're stressing me out. You know, I don't like this. I don't like have, have to worry about that. So any of those can put you in a high concern situation. And then low trust is when for whatever reason, the person or people you're communicating with are not inclined to trust you as a source of information. It could be because they think you've hurt them before or the organization you represent has hurt them before. They may think that you have a vested interest in being less than open and honest, you know, less than caring and empathetic. A lot of people feel that corporations only think about the bottom line which of course they do think about the bottom line, but at least the folks that I've worked with, while that isn't important, it's equally important to them to try to make people comfortable with whatever's going on and understand it. So um, that's why, I, that's, so we're in a high concern, low trust situation. And now I've lost my train of thought of where I was going. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, right. me too for a second. PowerPoints, PowerPoints. PowerPoint, right, right, right. So um, yeah, so it, People in a high concern, low trust situation, you want people to be paying attention to you as a person, because as you said earlier, you, when you said, you know, being human, yeah, I say that to my clients all the time, you know, be human. Don't, you know, you're, be a person. Don't necessarily be, don't be the representative of the corporation that you work for. Be a, be a real person. That's what you that's your goal is to try to put yourself into that kind of a situation and 
present that to people so that they'll be more willing to, to communicate with you, be more open to hearing what you have to say. And PowerPoint shifts attention from that audience away from you as a person and toward a screen. Mm. Uh, and then there are all kinds of other things that people do wrong, um, mistakes they made a lot of, make a lot of people just read the words on their slide. Uh, a lot of people um, use way too many words uh, and all of that just makes it very, makes it harder to, to communicate. I believe you, there are smart ways to use PowerPoint. There are a lot of examples out there that you can see, you know, a lot of very few words, a lot of images and graphics and um, motion can be helpful. But the bottom line is if you're my client, um, I don't want PowerPoint to distract people from you and what you're trying to say. Right, right. Now that that's very interesting. I mean, look, honestly, I, I'm in my mind. I'm thinking of all celebrities in the world in crisis management right now. I'm like imagining, you know, like do you look at the response that celebrities do sometimes when they have a public relations disaster? And I mean, first of all, I don't even know if you concern yourself with such things, but um, you, you know, you talk about Tiger Woods in the book and you talk about Martha Stewart and Bill Clinton. Um, you know, how often when you look at a celebrity and something comes out about them, would you, could you look at the situation and be like, here's how they could have played this and it would have worked much better. Does that come across your gaze or thoughts at all? Um, it does sometimes. I, not that I work with celebrities. I, one thing that comes immediately to mind is the uh, scandal from last year where a number of celebrities and otherwise wealthy people had hired uh, somebody to help their children get into yeah. colleges, um, by taking tests for people, by um, making claims and applications that were untrue, often revolving around sports. Uh, and uh, Felicity Huffman, Fel Felicita Huffman? Yeah, Felicity the, Huffman, I was going to say. Felicity Huffman from, right, uh, married to William uh, T. Macy. Uh, I thought, you know, she basically, from the very beginning said, you know what, I did this. I'm guilty. I'm very sorry. It was a horrible thing I did. And she, from a, even from a legal standpoint, went in and and accepted what she had done, accepted responsibility for it, was punished uh, and you know, served the punishment, but didn't have to go to prison because she was upfront and open about what she had done. And to me, when I think about the kids who were involved, who are of course the, the victims here, the primary, yeah. victims, if you're a parent who did something like that for your daughter and you get caught, I mean, what a horrible signal it sends to your children that you would engage in that kind of activity, even though maybe as parents, we can understand why you would get a little carried away with trying to help out your kid, especially if you have the resources to do it. So what a terrible message to send. But in my mind, it's completely erased or overwritten perhaps by the message you send that says, you know what, when you do something wrong, you own up to it. You admit your mistake, you accept responsibility, you apologize for it and you move on. And my own personal um, not that I know her or even though I'm a huge fan of her work, but I think if I saw her on the street, I would go up to her and just say, God bless you for what you did and, and, you know, owning up to it and you did the right thing. And I think you're, you know, the message that you sent to your daughter as a result is, uh, is really a good one. Whereas you look at some of the other celebrities who are involved who are fighting a tooth and nail 
dragging it out, trying to, you know, say, well, and make excuses for this and so forth. To me, that's the wrong way to go. Just makes things worse. Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, is there ever a case you've encountered where the business didn't actually do something wrong, but the crisis is that everybody thinks they did, but they really didn't? And how do you handle that? Well, that's, in a way, that's, that's a lot of what I deal with in that, for example, to go back to this pharmaceutical company in New Jersey, as I mentioned, this groundwater contamination, although there was a tiny amount that likely came from them, the vast majority of it was actually passing underneath their facility, coming from, you know, outside the perimeter of their facility, going underneath it in the groundwater and emerging on the other side into a neighborhood, residential neighborhood, but it wasn't theirs. They didn't put it there. It just happened to be passing underneath their site. And so in that sense, they didn't do anything wrong, um, but they nevertheless stepped up and said, hey, this is here. It's beneath our site. We want to divest this facility and we want to be a good neighbor. We've been a you know, member of this community for decades and decades. And you know, that's, that's, you know, they're, like I said, they're people, they feel bad about the fact that they're leaving. I mean, it was a good, it was the right business decision to shut down and leave, but they recognize that the toll it's going to take on the community. So they've been working, this is an ongoing project, which is why I can't be too specific about it. Right, right. But, you know, it, from my point of view, they did all the right things. They engaged with the community, with local politicians, they were willing to spend money and resources to resolve some of these issues, even though, they hadn't caused it. So mm. uh, I deal with that a lot. And, and that takes us back to probably the most important equation in risk communication. And that is P equals R, which means perception is reality. And mm. in a high concern, low trust situation, when people are angry, worried, and suspicious, one of the first things that I teach my clients is you're dealing, you're operating on the perception side of the equation, not the reality. You may know, for example, in this case, that number one, you didn't cause the contamination beneath your site. And number two, the contamination beneath the site is not a health hazard. There's, you get into exposure pathways and all kinds of toxic, toxicity and all those kinds of things. And right. you know, the bottom line is somebody would have to burrow, you know, dig a well 80 or 100 feet down and then eat the dirt for 25 years and then they might get sick. You know, that's the kind of level of contamination you're talking about, but nevertheless, it is there. Um, and so, but you may know that reality and that's the reality you're trying to share with people, but you have to operate on the perception side, which is where the people you're trying to communicate with are, are operating. And from their perception, this is dangerous. I might get sick. It's reducing my property value. I might have difficulty selling my home, or if I do, I'm not going to get as much money as I thought I was going to. Mm. And that's where the, that's again, where that whole code score comes in with that caring and empathy comes in to understand that that's where people are coming from on that side of the equation. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, what I'm wondering is I, I feel like I see this pattern over and over. Um, for instance, when, when someone gets in trouble, like what is, and we, we saw this with me too, especially, but also like the pattern of when someone gets called out for saying something racist, but they want to still be in the public line of fire or uh, not public line of fire. They still want to be accepted at some point and have their uh, credibility come back. I know you talk about credibility 
vulnerability in your book. Um, what it's like, they get in trouble. You know, they talk to their PR person. Then they come out, they publicly apologize, and then they have the next step is usually like the quote unquote rehab phase. So what is that? Whether it's like go to Reverend Al Sharpton and sit down with him if it's a racist thing or, um, you know, I, Harvey Weinstein came out and talked about going into rehab and dealing with his issues. And obviously that's like a disgraceful human being that I don't think is going to be accepted back into society. But I think it's interesting that because of, I think people are even more suspicious now, like you're saying we're in the most suspicious time ever, but the fact that I'm sitting here and going, well, I now know all the PR moves an organization or a person is going to make. Uh, does that make your work even harder because you have to address the cynicism that comes with, oh, they made a mistake and now they're, you know, like how do you actually win the trust of the public when People are pattern-seeking machines, and I feel like they're seeing more of the patterns than ever. Right. Yeah, it, it's it's a big, it's a very big challenge. There are certainly a lot of people who are not going to be able to overcome it. And I, you know, I use the example of Felicity Huffman, who I think did things right, and you know, at least in my estimation, uh, came out you know, looking better than than she did going in. Then you're pointing out Harvey Weinstein, who's just never going to. You know, rehabilitate his image. And as far as I'm concerned, that's just fine. Yeah. Um, yeah. Sometimes you do things so bad that there's, you know, even if you were to sincerely take responsibility and apologize, it's not going to help you. Um, but I do think one of the things that I will often say to clients, particularly when we talk about caring and empathy, not to harp on that too much, but uh, you, you can't act caring and empathetic. You have to be caring and empathetic. So um, mm. if you're one of the first things we'll do is if we're going into a difficult situation with a client is identify the right person because you can't necessarily teach caring and empathy. You can open people's eyes to it. And as mentioned earlier, when you're dealing with scientists and engineers who, you know, use data and, uh, and information and research results, that's sort of the coin of the realm in their world. That's how they establish trust and credibility with one another, uh, with their colleagues. Uh, when you when they go into these other situations and that doesn't work and they get confused and they don't understand, you can, you know, there are caring and empathetic people who just don't think to be caring and empathetic in a situation like that. So you want to, you want to open their, as I said, open their eyes to it, but you, that's very important. So sincerity and earnestness is just, is an important part of that equation as well. It can't be fake caring and everything. You can't make it up. Um, you actually have to feel it. Yeah, people and, can sense it. People can sense right. it. And yeah. it, it, there's another, not that we're talking about media, but of course I work with a lot of clients to help them get ready for, um, for interviews. And one of the techniques that you'll hear a lot about in my business is called bridging, which means um, you go from the question that you've been asked to the answer you want to give. Mm. And you, you see this all the time if you watch a press conference. And partic it's particularly true with President Trump, but it's always been true. And you watch through it and, and you'll notice they never actually answer the question they were asked. You know, they very quickly pivot to talk about something that they would prefer to talk about, a different message that you're trying to get across. Uh, that's the art of bridging. People are increasingly sort of hip to that now. And I've even had 
clients bring that up and say, well, you know, when I see people do that, I'm onto them now. I, I know what they're doing. You know, they're, they're avoiding, they're deflecting. And to a certain degree, that's true. Uh, but it's still an effective technique if you use it right. If you do it in a way that may be obvious to people, but nevertheless is sincere, um, you know, people will, will cut you a break, I guess. Uh, yeah, I'm wondering how someone does it in a way in a way that's effective uh, in this climate. Um, you know, I mean, is there is it does it really come down to that positive? Like you can tell when someone's deflecting for the sake of actually not having an answer versus, you know, they want to get to a broader point and uh, it's coming from a sincere place. I mean, does it come down to intention and sincerity still at even at the like political debate level? Um, yeah, it does. Uh, and that's an ex- a very good point. I would encourage people to watch the presidential b- debates. I guess they started in what, a couple of months already now. Um, and you'll see a lot of that. You'll see you know, the questions being thrown up at the candidates and it, an effective way to do it, of course, is to answer the question in some quick way. Yes, but, or, you know, that's true. Well, I see it a different way. Those are all bridges that you can use from the question to the response you want to give. And there are just people who are better at it than others. And that often is because they have more practice and they've taken more time to really master the art. And that's another important message that I send to clients and that I think your listeners should keep in mind. And that is particularly on the professional side, but it's true in the personal side too. As I said, I will often get into an argument and then only a few minutes in or more realize, Hey, step back and use some of these skills to try to make this go a little bit better. But the more you do it, the better you get at it. It's like any skill, Um, you know, whether it's baseball or swimming or acting or singing, you know, practice makes perfect. So, yeah. Did you meet people? Do you meet people? I was going to ask about uh, innate people that are just great at this. I mean, um, you know, do do you meet those people or is there still stuff to learn? Uh, Yeah. So like anything, there are people who are naturally good at this kind of thing. um, And the really, truly great ones wind up being, you know, successful politicians, successful business people, uh, successful in every field. Uh, But having said that, number one, even those people, they need practice. Um, I use the example a lot of, you know, Ronald Reagan was considered to be one of the great, he was called the great communicator, Mm. Um, but he was, and he certainly had a lot of natural talent, a lot of natural ability, but for many years, and this is a long time ago, even before I was born, um, but he honed his skill when he was a representative for General Electric Corporation. He hosted a show um, that was on every week um, called, I, boy, what is it called? I should remember, but now it's slipping my mind. And as part of the deal he had with General Electric, he went around to uh, speak at GE facilities all over the country and maybe even all over the world. He was on the road 100, 150, sometimes 200 hour, days a year speaking to people. And that's really where he learned how to do it. You know, he, he wasn't born to it necessarily. And not everybody can be Ronald Reagan, of course, but I would argue that everybody can be a better communicator if they learn the skills and techniques of risk communication and 
have practiced them. As often. Have you seen anybody radically change after, like, like at a personal level, like maybe they had to handle some sort of crisis or whatnot, and uh, you know, all of a sudden after that, you talk to them again, and they're like completely different people. Like, does that ever happen? Um, yeah, well, it does happen. I wouldn't say they're completely different people. Again, it's more it's more sort of learning that there are other skills and techniques that you can employ to be an effective communicator. I'll use an example. Uh, I used to go out to the Idaho National Laboratory from time to time to do training with young scientists and research researchers there. And the goal was to help them communicate more clearly about the incredible work they were doing. Uh, so, you know, they would be doing things that could benefit, you know, the country from uh, climate change, for example, or clean energy. And while the work they were doing was incredibly interesting, if you tried to ask, if you asked them to explain it to somebody who was not a fellow PhD, <laughs> yeah, they, were, they just couldn't do it. You know, they, they were so used to communicating with in, in that way with, as I said already several times with data, with research results, with numbers, with statistics. And, and that's how they, establish trust and credibility with their colleagues and with the people who fund them and so forth. But when you try to explain it to their neighbors or their friends, or even, you know, in some cases, if there was reason to explain it to a politician, uh, they couldn't do it. And so there were many cases in that situation where I went out when I first worked with them and I would ask them, hey, tell me what you're doing. And they would lose me with the first syllable. You know, I didn't even understand the individual yeah, words. Yeah, yeah, right. Let alone the concepts. But by the time we were done, you would ask them the same question and suddenly they could rattle off, you know, a two or three minute description of what they did in clear, you know, concise language that everyday person could understand. And suddenly you had someone who not only was, you know, just better at communicating generally with everyone, but they, they were happy because now when they went to their next barbecue in their neighborhood and somebody asked them what they did, they suddenly had a way to explain it that people would go, oh, wow, that's really cool. Yeah, yeah, that's great. And, you know, exciting. Instead of, hey, thanks for sharing that with me, but I have no idea what you <laughs> Yes, yes. Yeah, no, I mean, hey, from a branding perspective, there are definitely uh, lots of companies out there that are in the tech world that... I mean, you go to their website, you have no idea what their value proposition is. It's like something with data management, da 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 da. And I mean, I think in general, uh, I've noticed in the corporate climate that, and even in marketing and advertising, that there is sort of a push to really, uh, I don't, I, I wouldn't call it dumb it down, though. I guess that is kind of what they're doing. Like, just talk to people like you would at a bar and really just try to get across cleanly and customers seem to respond to, I mean, how often do you go to a website now? And whereas five years ago, they might not have had that chat feature um, that says, Hey, welcome. Well, what can I help you with? Uh, so I guess I sort of wonder, you know, when you talk about that things are different now than they were in the past, like, I can't even imagine what crisis management was like in the mid-90s for a business. Um, you know, like, would an oil spill in the ocean now be totally, you would handle that totally different than, I mean, what happened in the 80s, 90s? Like, and what, what would those differences be? Well, I think the fundamental principles of dealing with a situation like that are pretty much the same in terms of, again, being open and honest, um, 
getting information out on a timely basis. And by the way, being open and honest means sometimes being open about the fact that you can't be open, you know, that, that you may not have all the information right now that you really need. Mm. Well, so the, the, the fundamental principles, I think, remain the same. What's changed are, is the context, right? So today, more than ever, things are almost instantaneous. Um, there, you, you find out about these things, there's, there's no time to react uh, or, or to think, which puts, of course, a huge uh, premium on preparation. We work with a lot of clients to help them get ready for potential crises. The whole idea is to think through these scenarios ahead of time. Oh, wow. Get, you know, get messages and statements and things uh, put together before something happens so that when it does, you're ready to, you know, to jump in right away and communicate effectively. You know, in, the, in the old days, you know, you, even, even back in the 90s, certainly before the internet, um, you you know you had some time. You know, likely, if some spill was to happen, it wouldn't make the news maybe even for a day or so until after you know, for the first time. And even then, it would be a, a cursory sort of a, a segment on a nightly news show or an article in a in a national newspaper. And things were just slower. You know, you, you you could take your time and didn't have to worry about uh, you know, about communicating right away. And then now today with social media. You know, not only is everything instantaneous, but suddenly everybody has an opinion. Everybody can participate in a conversation. Rumors fly around, you know, so quickly um, that it's almost impossible to keep track of them. And so it complicates things from a tactical standpoint in terms of how to respond. But again, the fundamental principles about how to be effective in a situation like that, I think, for the most part, stay the same. Very cool. Very cool. Uh, you know what? We always hear Bill Clinton. We always hear, you know, Ronald Reagan and some of these other great pacifiers in history. Um, who do you think is like an underrated master of crisis management that we could learn examples from that doesn't get enough street cred in the like business communications world? You know, that's a, you put me on the spot there. I can't, nobody comes to mind right off the bat. I can think of who would be a good example of somebody who doesn't get enough credit for it, but let me, let me, let me pivot. Let me bridge. No, Bridget, Bridget, do it right now. <laughs> to, to a response, which is I do always like to, to take some time whenever I do a, a training or work with a client. And I think in this situation as well, and that is to remind people that there are a lot of people who were great communicators who we probably didn't want to be so great. Um, and of course, one of the, classic examples is Adolf Hitler. Mm, uh, yes. He, he had pretty much one skill and that was he could give a good speech. And <laughs> yeah. from that, you know, he, he built himself up into, you know, a, a leader of a party that you know, took over a country that, you know, almost destroyed the world. So you, you do have to be careful. And, and the skills and techniques that we talk about when it comes to risk communication, unfortunately, like almost everything, it's a double-edged sword. You can, you can use them to be better communicators, more caring, more open, more dedicated, more competent and so forth. But you can also use them to manipulate um, and to you know, get people to do things or say things or think things that they might not otherwise if you didn't sort of employ these tools in an underhanded way. So I'm always careful to let people know that you know, think about that. And, and as, as you're working to communicate in a difficult situation, make sure that you are uh, informing and educating 
and persuading and not manipulating you know, or hurting or doing things that are going to put people in any kind of danger. Awesome. Awesome. Well, look, you know, you've got uh, your book, um, which is, uh, and we'll definitely post links to it, What to Say When Things Get Tough, Business Communication Strategies for Winning People Over When They're Angry, Worried, and Suspicious of Everything You Say. And you have this podcast, uh, What to Say When Things Get Tough. I mean, it looks like yeah, well, you've got some great reviews going on um, and a lot of interesting topics. Is there anything that uh, beyond the book that you're really hoping to achieve with the podcast? Uh, no, not not really. I think it's, it's, it's an extension of the book. Uh, well, I'll tell you what, let me start that again. <laughs> you, can that, you can edit that part out. Uh, what I'm hoping to do with the podcast is the same thing I was hoping to do with the book, which is to educate people and um, expose them to some different ways of thinking when it comes to communicating effectively in difficult situations in a professional setting or a personal setting. And I hope that those who read the book, listen to the podcast, will uh, learn some skills that they can use to you know, be more effective um, in winning people over and uh, in generally communicate effectively when people are angry, worried, and suspicious. Wow. Very nice. Leonard, appreciate you. This is the bridge to the conclusion right now. I uh, appreciate I'm, I know I'm using that wrong. But uh, yes, thanks for coming on. Appreciate it. Uh, Leonard Greenberger, uh, it's been great learning about these things. And I definitely, yeah, I definitely want to check out your book. Well, thank you for having me. I, it was a lot of fun. The first time I've been a podcast guest as opposed to a podcast host. So. Oh, good. I'm glad. I'm glad I broke the ice. Awesome. Well, thank you. I learned a lot. And uh, yeah, take care with everything. Thank you. You too. <laughs> okay. Bye-bye.